Turn with me to Matthew 14. Matthew 14, and we'll read verses 22 through 36. And when you get there and you are able, you can go ahead and stand with us for the reading of God's Word. We do that because when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. And so out of, out of respect, we, we stand while we read the Scriptures. Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart! It is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you upon the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to to, uh, to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, as Jesus has talked about discipleship through the gospel of Matthew, we understand that it is difficult. Uh, It is difficult each and every day, and there are circumstances, including persecution and those uh, opposition to the message of the kingdom, will stand against Jesus and his disciples. So discipleship is difficult. So one of the questions that you could ask, and even the Gospel of Matthew inherently asks, is how are you going to make it? How are you going to make it as a disciple? We could ask the question of ourselves today. How are we going to make it? The, the deck is stacked against us, not only from the world, but our own flesh and the devil. How are we going to make it as disciples? What's going to keep you going through the distractions and the difficulties of life? And we get uh, a picture, sort of, of that example, to, uh, of the answer to that question today. And the answer to that question, and really we've already seen it, but we see it again today, really what's going to bring you through, what's going to help you to persevere, enable you to persevere as a disciple, is seeing Jesus for who he is in all of his glory and acting accordingly. That is what's going to bring you through, keep you going through the distractions and difficulties of life as a disciple. And this issue of identity, you need to see who Jesus is. And that has been an issue in Matthew the last couple weeks, hasn't it? We saw Jesus after he spoke of the parables of the kingdom. He goes to his hometown. He goes to the Nazarenes. 
And uh, like we've been saying, Matthew's panning the camera in this section on different groups and the response to who Jesus is. Who, what is his identity? How do they view him? And we saw the Nazarenes essentially view him as, we know this guy, he's some sort of upstart, he has nothing to tell us. And then the camera panned on to Herod, and he thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. He's so afraid of losing his rule and his reign, uh, and the threat that John the Baptist was to that, that he bypasses, he completely misses Jesus, and he thinks he's John the Baptist raised. But then what we've seen in this next section, we saw it last week, and it's kind of continued this morning, is the camera pans on to the disciples. It pans on to the disciples. So we saw last week that Jesus left. Uh, he, he's threatened uh, by Herod, so he withdraws. He makes a strategic withdrawal across the lake, across the Sea of Galilee. He also does it probably as he's mourning over John as that pivotal um, figure in redemptive history. Uh, the one who prepared the way for the Messiah, his death, the beheading of John, uh, pictures what's going to happen to Jesus. And, and we saw that as he goes to the other side, we see this crowd waiting for him, and then um, he heals them, he has compassion on them, and then the disciples come up to him, say, uh, what are we going to do for food for these people? Jesus says, you feed them, and then what happens is Jesus displays his power. He displays his creative power for the benefit of the disciples. And we said that the disciples are learning. Jesus is teaching the disciples. They're learning more about his identity. And it continues right on into this week, where the camera is still on the disciples, and we see their response. And so what we see this week in this passage that we just read is this big main idea— Jesus is God the Son, so focus your faith and courage on him and do not be afraid. Jesus is God the Son, that's his identity, so focus your faith and courage on him and do not be afraid. So let's see what the passage has for us. Let's first look in verses 22 through 24 and let's see that Jesus prepares to display his identity as God the Son. Jesus prepares to display his identity as God the Son. Look at verse 22. Immediately, so what are we given to understand? Right after the disciples have picked up these 12 basketful of pieces left over from the feeding of the 5,000, right after that, Jesus does what he does, and what does he do? Immediately, he made, and it's the idea he compelled. This is a very strong word. He compelled the disciples to get into the boat and to go before him or to go ahead of him to the other side while or until he dismissed the crowds. Which is kind of the exact reverse movement that happened for them to get there. You remember they were probably started on the western shore last week, and they moved to the eastern shore, and they sailed to the eastern shore, and they see all these crowds, and Jesus has compassion, he heals them, the feeding of the 5,000 happens. But then this is interesting, immediately... Jesus compels his disciples to make a reverse movement, doesn't he? He says, all right, go back to the other side. And he only says, go back to the other side, but he says, go ahead of me. In other words, the picture is, uh, go back to the other side by boat. I'll catch up with you later. Now, we already know it's not that hard because the crowd outran the boat to make it to where they landed. So it's possible that Jesus is saying, take the boat across, I'll dismiss the crowd, and then I'll walk back over uh, to be with you. I'll, that, so go ahead, ahead of me. I'll, I'll catch up with you later. 
Now, it's kind of interesting. Why would Jesus do this? Why doesn't he just have the disciples stay there with him? Uh, what's, why? We're not, ex- we're not told explicitly why, but we do see uh, in this, these first few verses that really Jesus is setting up the board for what's about to happen. He's setting up the disciples to teach them more. Just like last week, he set them up by saying, you give them something to eat. And they're like, how are we going to do that? And he taught them through that. Now he's positioning them. He's moving them. He's moving the pieces in such a way to do what he's going to do in walking on the water and giving this great sign. So he sends them off while he dismisses the crowds. Verse 23, and after he had dismissed the crowd, so he accomplishes that, they go away. He went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So we know that Jesus, if you look back to last week in verses 13 through 14, uh, he wanted to get away. He wanted to go across the lake to begin with to be by himself, to go away privately after hearing of John the Baptist's beheading. We said that's a strategic withdrawal to avoid... um, undue confrontation with Herod. It's not the right time for that kind of confrontation. But probably also we see kind of the other end of it. Jesus got interrupted of his purposes to be alone, and he had this big old crowd that he had compassion on. He healed them, he fed them, and now he dismisses them, and then he goes back to his initial desire, which is to be by himself. And what does he do while he's by himself? He prays. He prays by himself on the mountain, so there's some sort of mountain nearby, He goes up and he prays to his father. Why is he doing it? Why is he praying? Well, again, we have to kind of read between the lines a little bit, but we understand John's pivotal role in redemptive history. Because John is the forerunner of the Messiah and he's just beheaded, it it means the die is cast and Jesus is going to the cross. And he knows that. So likely there's that communion, that understanding, that prayer and communion with the father as he is preparing to go to the cross. That is one of the things. It's not the central point of this passage, but it is interesting to note, and we see it multiple times in the Gospels, how Jesus continually goes to prayer on his own to the Father. In a sense, you think, well, he doesn't have to because he's God. Well, that's true, but he does. You see the communion between the Father and the Son when he goes and depends on the Father through prayer, and we see that even here. When evening came, he was there alone. So he does this alone. Now notice the time. Notice the time. When you're dealing with narrative, as we are here, time is important. Uh, It is often uh, instructive for what is happening. Now, already, you remember from last week, it was getting on to evening time already when the disciples said, hey, it's getting late, let's feed these people. And evening already came on. So we're given to understand this is later, so maybe it's dark by now, we assume so. But evening is, you know, if we were to stretch the term a little bit, it's, you know, it could be dark, uh, could be before midnight, probably, uh, when this is happening and he's all alone. But notice that time stamp. He's setting everything up, and then what else do we see for this setup? Verse 24, but the boat, so when it's evening time, probably it's dark maybe, before midnight, something like that. But the boat, by this time in the evening, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So the boat is traveling evidently from east to west, trying to fulfill what Jesus told them to do, but you've got this big old windstorm, and that's 
typical for the Sea of Galilee, but it's inhibiting their process. And the idea is uh, this word for it's being beaten by the waves is being tested. It's, uh, it's a word that can mean tortured. So the boat's having a rough go of it because of these waves. And through verse 24, essentially you see all the parties involved what's gonna, uh, for what's going to happen next. All the pieces are set. Jesus has orchestrated this by him compelling the disciples to get into the boat and to go off by themselves. He's been by himself praying. And now the boat is in a, a ways away, probably two, three, four miles away from shore in, in the lake, and it can't make progress. It's fighting waves. The wind is against them. It's contrary to them. So that's the state of the affairs before we walk into the next section. But again, who's calling the shots? Jesus is calling the shots. He's setting everything up to do what he's about to do. And what is he about to do? In verses 25 through 33, we see this. Jesus displays his identity as God the Son for the disciples' faith. Jesus displays his identity as God the Son for the disciples' faith. Look at verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night. Now, that's a time stamp, right? We already had one time stamp in the evening. We had the state of the affairs. It's dark. Jesus is alone on the mountain praying. And we've got the scene of where everyone's at. So Jesus is on the mountain. He's alone praying. The boat's in the two or three, four miles away, at least, in the, the sea. Uh, it can't make progress. So we've got the scene set up. And then the development happens in the fourth watch. Now, uh, you might have a footnote in your Bible that uh, right next to night. Uh, you're like, what's, what's, what's the fourth watch of the night? Well, the way they reckon time, the, the Romans reckon time, you had 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., and that's the daytime hours. And then from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., you had the watches of the night. And that was divided into, four, for if you were a Roman, and that's apparently how Matthew's reckoning time here, four watches of the night, three hours apiece. So the fourth watch is the last one of the night, so we're talking between 3 and 6 a.m. Now, what just happened? A bunch of time just passed, didn't it? Because in the evening is the last time we saw the state of the fair. So we've had a several hours pass. This is significant. Why is it significant? Well, one, we see the time passage, but we also, what happens between 3 and 6 a.m., generally speaking, depending on where you're at in the globe and the time of the year, Daylight. Daylight. So dawn is coming, right? Which makes sense to set up for what Jesus is about to do. So it's between 3 and 6 a.m., probably a little bit later on towards dawn in that time period. So the disciples have been hindered by this wind for a long time at this point, okay? Uh, what do we see? In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, let's, let's focus on the mundane aspects of this before we focus on the amazing aspects of this. This kind of makes sense of some of the time difference, because if Jesus is on a mountain, we don't know how tall the mountain is. He has to get down from the mountain, and then he has to go to the shore, and then the disciples are two, three, four miles away from shore. And you figure how long it takes you to walk. We don't know how long he prayed. We don't know when he got down. But some of that time difference, it's just the time it takes for Jesus to walk down from the mountain out to the boat. 
So that's kind of the mundane aspect of it. I don't know if Jesus, when he's walking on water, if he's able to walk at a normal pace or if it's a little bit of a rough going, like a hike. I don't know. I don't know what that looked like. But um, regardless, that, uh, that accounts for some of the time difference in what is happening. Now, that's the mundane stuff. This is one of those things you read in the scriptures and you're like, oh yeah, Jesus walked on the water. He walked on the water! (laughs) Who else gets to do that, right? Some of the things that we see Jesus do, in fact, we've seen a lot in Matthew that uh, links back to Old Testament things. So, you know, you see him do intentional things like this, and you, you know, you might ask the question, well, is there anyone else in the scriptures that gets to walk on water? Because that's pretty unusual to, you know, if I'm on the edge of a swimming pool and I just walk out into the swimming pool, I bloop, because I have mass, right? And I'm going to sink to the bottom. This is unusual. Um, And in fact, you don't, if you were to go to the Old Testament scriptures, there are really uh, no clear-cut references to anyone else walking on water except one, except one in Job chapter 9, verse 8. So go ahead and turn back to Job, right before Psalms. So middle of your Bible to a little to the left. And, you know, Job is going through a great amount of suffering. His friends have come by this point to try to comfort him. Job's struggling. Why am I suffering so much? And his friends are going back and forth but one of the things that you do, you get these kind of great sections, even from his friends sometimes, where they're just extolling the greatness of God. And that's where our verse resides. I'm actually going to back up to verse 4 just to give you a little bit of context. But Job is just going off extolling God's greatness. Verse 4, he is, speaking of God, he is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has, hardened himself, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars. Here's our verse. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. So Job is in the midst of this extolling God's greatness. And one of the things he says in verse 8 is God is amazing and he displays his greatness uh, by trampling on the sea, by walking on the sea. Now, sometimes other people will point to other verses in the Old Testament that seem that could possibly indicate that someone's walking on the, the sea, but usually those are references to going through the sea, not on top of the sea. And so the only other clear reference in Scripture to someone walking on the water is God. In other words, that's God's prerogative alone. So now we see and go back to Matthew and think about what Jesus is doing. He obviously, I mean, Jesus got to know that they're going to get waylaid in the middle of the water. He walks down, and he comes to them. He's walking on the sea. Now, this isn't just for a little while, is it? We said that there are two or three, four miles. He's doing this consistently two, three, four miles till he gets to them. He's walking on the water. Only God 
gets to walk on the water. And so this is part of the package of what Jesus is doing for his disciples. He is revealing to them part of his majesty, part of his glory as God the Son. He's revealing his identity as God through this. And we see that even more as we go along. So he's walking on the sea, he comes to them. How far does he get? Well, it's, we can actually kind of make some observations about how close he gets to the boat in the next few verses. So look at verse 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, which means it's light enough and he's close enough for them to see him. Again, maybe it's kind of that gray time right before the sun comes up. You know what that looks like a little bit. So it's light enough to make some things out. It gets a little bit hard. But they see him walking on the sea. They see enough to see him walking on the sea. They were terrified and said, it is a ghost. Now, this is kind of a superstitious response, sort of. But it kind of makes intuitive sense, sort of. Um, You know, like I said, if I was on the edge of a swimming pool and I just tried to walk out there, I'm going to bloop, sink, because I have mass. Well, a spirit doesn't have mass, or at least evidently it doesn't from other things we see in Scripture. So it kind of makes sense. If you see a human figure walking on the sea, it's like, well, the only way that would happen is it doesn't have any weight to it, so it must be a spirit. It's got to be an apparition. It's got to be a ghost. So it's kind of superstitious. It's kind of, I mean... You know, you think of the state of mind they're in, and it has a certain logic to it. But notice, this is terrifying to them, and they cried out in fear. And Jesus, no, uh, Jesus responds to this immediately. Verse 27, but immediately. So he hears this. Jesus is close enough to the boat to hear them cry out in fear. He's close enough to be seen by the disciples. He's close enough for him in a windstorm to hear them cry out in fear. And then notice what Jesus does. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So Jesus is also close enough to be able to speak in a windstorm over the wind and be heard by his disciples. Meaning what? He's probably fairly close to the boat. If we put all the situation together, he's probably fairly close to the boat. Now, that's going to be significant here in a second. Notice what he says. Take heart or take courage. It is I. Now, that little phrase, it is I, in the original is literally I am. That's what it says. Just says I am. So it could just be him saying it is I. That's the way you would say it is I. But uh, there could be more to it than that. And what we're thinking about is when God reveals his name in Exodus 3.14 to Moses, and Moses is like, who who do I say to the people of Israel has sent me? He says, you'll say, I am who I am has sent, sent you. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now we're suspicious about that. Is, Is Jesus just saying, hey guys, it's me. Don't worry about it. It's me, Jesus. Or is he saying more? Well, we keep reading a little bit, and we begin to put some more pieces together. Notice what Peter does. Verse 28. And Peter answered him, so they heard Jesus over the wind, so he's close enough to be heard, for them to have a conversation in a windstorm back and forth. Peter answered him, Lord, 
Now, Lord is not necessarily, um, it could just be a title of respect. In fact, it probably is. Uh, we've seen that elsewhere in Matthew, where like the centurion comes up to Jesus and he calls him Lord. It's a title of respect. You could translate it master, right? Peter's the disciple. Jesus is the master. Now, think about that. If Peter is able to call him Lord or master, what does that mean? It means he already recognizes that it's Jesus, which makes sense. Jesus is close enough to be seen, to be heard. Peter already recognizes that it's Jesus. Okay, so now that comes back to our question. Is Jesus, when he says, I am, or it is I, is he just saying, hey guys, don't worry, it's me, Jesus? Is he just saying, it's me, Jesus, or is he saying something more? And Peter helps us answer that a little bit. Notice what Peter says. Lord, okay, master, I recognize you. If it is you, and again, uh, you, uh, literally in the original, it's if you are. That's how it reads. If you are, now notice what Peter says. This is really interesting. Command me to come to you on the water. Now, let's, let's think about two scenarios. If Jesus is just saying to the disciples, hey guys, don't worry, it's just me, Jesus. Why in the world would Peter then say, well, if it's you, Jesus, command me. Isn't that odd? Uh, like, he's not just asking a question like, hey, Jesus, can I come out there? He's actually telling Jesus or requesting to Jesus, would you issue a command such that I can join you on top of the water. If Peter's interest is just, is that really you, Jesus? I can't quite see you. It doesn't make much sense. First off, he could have just waited, right? Jesus is already heading towards the boat, right? And he could have just waited for Jesus to get into the boat. So I think once we pull the details together, more is going on here than Jesus just saying, hey guys, it's me, don't worry about it. What he's doing is he's saying, take heart, I am, don't be afraid. Which is the kind of way that God speaks, especially in Isaiah, you see that language a lot in Isaiah. You, uh, Israel, don't be afraid. I am he. Trust me. So what Jesus is doing here, he's not just saying, it's me, guys, Jesus. is saying, I'm God. Don't take heart. Don't be afraid. And that makes sense because who has the prerogative to walk on water? Only God. And it makes more sense if Peter is not saying, hey, is it you, Jesus? If he's actually saying, okay, if it's you, God, if you are, I can't just join you out there. God has to issue a divine command to enable someone else to come out and join him on the water because only God has the prerogative to walk on water. So what is Peter doing? You know, you might ask the question, why in the world does Peter want to get out of the boat? Like, it just doesn't make any sense, right? Like, great, Jesus is walking on water, but why does Peter want to get out? Why doesn't he just wait for Jesus to come to the boat? Well, it makes sense if Peter is verifying a claim that Jesus is making. Command me, as the, you're claiming to be the creator God. If that is so, and I see it and I believe it, Command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus honors his request. Verse 26, he said, come. 
Nothing wrong with what Peter asked. In fact, it's a, it's a request of faith, as we will see. But Jesus still has to issue the command, and he does. Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. So now we've got Peter walking on the water. It's not like he just walked out of the side of the boat and went kerplop, right? Like we know he starts to sink um, later, but he walked on water. That's what the text says. How far did he get? We don't know how far the boat was from Jesus. They're relatively close, but Peter gets within an arm's length of Jesus because um, Jesus has to pull him out here in a minute. But Peter is walking on water. And he comes to Jesus. He gets close. He's doing well. And then what happens in verse 30? But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately, you see that multiple times, right? Jesus is immediately on it. He immediately reaches out his hand, takes hold of him, and says what to him? Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? And Jesus' question there, why did you doubt? It's not the question of cause, it's the question of purpose. For what purpose did you doubt? For what purpose did you doubt? Now let's pause and consider this interchange between Jesus and Peter. First, um, what is, uh, Peter had little faith, not no faith. What he did evidenced faith. It evidenced faith. Um, Faith, uh, we also see this, faith is opposed to doubt. We understand that, that faith is opposed to doubt. But we also notice this, uh, when did Peter start evidencing doubt? Well, he evidenced doubt when he starts, uh, we get the picture, right? He's looking at Jesus. He's like, this is the creator God. He's commanded me to come out. I'm successfully walking on the water. And then he starts doing, doing this, right? And he's been seeing these winds and waves all night. His focus shifts from the Jesus, the creator God in front of him, and he starts looking at his circumstances, the things around him, and it drives him to fear. And so Jesus, or Peter's doubt was evidenced through his shifting of his focus and that producing fear. That's characterized as doubt on the part of Jesus. This is actually a very beautiful picture of what faith is. You know, faith is not self-confidence, and you can see that in this text, because Peter has, it's not about his self-confidence, is it? It's about whether, and even from the beginning when he asked Jesus, command me to come to you on the water, he understands, to a point, who Jesus is as the creator God, and he knows he can act only if God commands him, so he's totally reliant and focused on Jesus, and then he acts based on that identity. And that is exactly what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is not an ascent to facts. It is not self-confidence. Um, it is looking to who God is, looking to who Jesus is and his identity, and keeping one's focus on that identity and acting based on that knowledge. This is a beautiful picture of biblical faith. Peter has faith up until the time of what? His focus on Jesus' identity and who he is and what he's able to do shifts 
to the circumstances around him and lets that drive him to fear, to taking the focus off of Jesus, his dependence on Jesus, his dependence on the creator God, and letting these things drive him to fear. And think about the situation. Peter was already successful, right? He was successfully walking to Jesus. And that's why Jesus asked this question, what purpose did you have in doubting? There was absolutely zero, no purpose for you doing that. Because he's already walking, putting one foot in front of the other on the, the, the surface of the waters. His focus is on Jesus. He's, he knows who he, Jesus is as the creator God. He's seeing that. There was absolutely no reason for him to look to the circumstances and let that drive him to fear. Zero. There was no purpose to it. That's what Jesus is talking about. And this is part of this whole package of Matthew and Jesus uh, teaching his disciples about who he is and what faith looks like. And notice, it's not just Peter, so uh, notice how things end up. Verse 32, so he reaches out, he grabs Peter. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat, the rest of the disciples, worshipped him. So in this case, given everything that's happened, this is, it's not just bowing down in, rever- you know, in kind of a polite way. This is, this is worship. They understand in some, somehow that Jesus is God. And notice what they say, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, again, the statement is kind of uh, interesting in the original because it's literally more like this. Truly, you are of God the Son. In other words, what they are saying as they worship Jesus is they are connecting and understanding that Jesus is connected with God. He has the quality of being of God and the Son. Now, we've also we've seen that title. We've talked about this title, Son of God, multiple times in Matthew. And uh, sometimes the emphasis on that title, Son of God, is a functional um, emphasis. Uh, What do I mean by that? Well, if you go to the Old Testament, there are certain individuals in the Old Testament who are humans who are called Son of God. So you can think of Adam. Adam was designed to be the original Son of God. What did that mean? It meant that he was supposed to function sort of like an adopted son in relation to God as ruler over the world and to manifest God's glory. Israel, as a nation, is later called God's son, and that same functional role is that Israel is this nation who's supposed to be a kingdom of priests to demonstrate God's glory over the world. Uh, David is called, and David and his heirs are called sons of God in the sense that there's a covenant relationship between them. There's supposed to be this king figure that's supposed to exercise a stewardship rule, uh, ultimately through the promise given to David over uh, Israel and the world. So that, that title definitely has that functional notion to it. And yet, even in Matthew, what we've seen is uh, that the title uh, sometimes goes beyond that to describe more Jesus as divine. And this is one of those cases where, yes, Jesus is going to be that Messiah, that king who's going to reign over all the world. And he's been portraying that throughout Matthew. That's one of Matthew's major points. But now it's even more than that. It's you are of God, 
the Son. You are, the way we would say it, is you are God the Son. You are divine. You are Yahweh. You are I am. And they, do they get it all the way? No, because we're going to see later. They don't get it all the way, but they get part of it. And they get uh, and see this, this, this one. Only God has the authority to walk on the divine sea. He's, he's the, the, God, only God has the authority, the divine authority, to walk on the sea. They see this. They see part of his identity, and they worship. And rightfully do they worship. What's also interesting about this is we have a storm on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples are trying to cross. It's like, uh, has that happened before? Yeah, it's happened before. It happened in the same book. It happened back in chapter 8. Usually when a biblical author has like two things that look very similar to each other, he's inviting you to compare and contrast them, right? Because they're so similar. So let's go back to chapter 8 sometime before, and let's see, what did that episode look like? What did that sea crossing and the storm look like? So let's go back to Matthew 8, verses 18 through 27, and let's do a little comparison and contrast, because that's, that's what Matthew is trying to get us to do a little bit. And it's interesting what we see. So verse 18, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. Well, that sounds familiar. We've got a crowd around, let's go to the other side. And then we get these two examples of people kind of seeking to follow Jesus, and he brings up the issues of discipleship. Uh, and the scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So we said back at that time, Jesus is teaching about what does it mean to be a disciple. Verse 23 and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So his disciples are following him in the boat. Now they're all in the boat together. That's different, right? They're all in the boat together this time. Versus in chapter 14, uh, Jesus is off by himself, and the disciples alone are in the boat. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, "'Save us, Lord!' We are perishing. Well, that's similar to what Peter cries out, isn't it? Save me, Lord. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? In other words, the same issues are at play here. Peter had little faith. The disciples as a whole had little faith uh, in that sea crossing back in chapter 8. Then he rose and rebuked the winds in the sea, and there was a great calm. Now, he didn't need to rebuke them in chapter 14. He just got into the boat and they stopped. And the men, notice the response of the disciples, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? Or what sort of person is this? That even winds and sea obey him. And that's how it ends. It ends with a question, doesn't it? It ends with a question of, what sort of person is this? Well, how does the chapter 14 episode end? Truly, you are of God, the Son. Meaning what? The disciples have grown in their faith. They're not perfect yet. They're far from it. Right? They've still got lots of things to learn. But they've grown. They've grown to understand more of who Jesus is and what he deserves 
in terms of allegiance, in terms of worship. They don't have the full picture yet, but they've grown. Now think about that. They see, the disciples are seeing Jesus' identity, and their faith has grown, versus the other groups. That's what Matthew's doing in this section, right? He's panning the camera onto different groups. Where's everyone at? And think about where they're at. Nazarenes, eh, this is some sort of upstart. Like, we know this guy. Um, Herod, oh, he's John the Baptist, raised from the dead, completely misses Jesus. Or even the crowds. Think back to chapter 14, verses 13 through 14, right? They race ahead. They meet Jesus as the boat's coming up to the shore. They want to be healed. And they're saying, well, they're interested in Jesus. They like the benefits they're getting. And then what happens? We get these two episodes, feeding of the 5,000 and walking on the water, which are increasing the disciples' understanding of who Jesus is and their faith. And then look what comes next. Look at what comes next in verses 34 through 36. This is intentional because we're back to the crowds. The crowds recognize Jesus' power, but not his identity. Look at verse 34. When they had crossed over, so they come to the western side, uh, they, we know that because Gennesaret, where they land, they, come, they came on land at Gennesaret. So we don't know exactly where they landed, like as far as la- uh, the boat, but then they went on land to Gennesaret. They're on the western shore. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that he might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. Now that's great, uh, but here's a couple things to notice. That's like a kind of like a sandwich, isn't it? Because we have the crowd seeking healing from Jesus here, and we had it in verses 13 and 14. What did we have in between? Well, we had these two episodes where Jesus is showing created, uh, creator God power for the faith of the disciples, and they're growing where are the crowd's at. Exactly the same spot. They're seeking Jesus for the benefits. They're interested in him as far as what, they, what he can do for them. In fact, it's very interesting. Um, Jesus is very passive in verses 34 through 36. The focus and the attention is on the people. It's all about what the people are doing. Hey, we recognize him. Hey, it's Jesus. And let's get everyone together and let's have him heal things. And, and, and what happens? Even, even the way that people get healed now, we saw the woman earlier in chapter 9 touch the hem of Jesus' garment, and she's healed. And we see the same thing happen here, which is great, and it's amazing, and it shows Jesus' power. But you kind of get this picture, because Jesus is kind of walking through, and people are, you know, kind of grabbing onto his hem. It's all like the people are doing the action, not Jesus. What is it supposed to show to us? Well, it's supposed to show that the crowds are stuck. They're in a different spot than the disciples are. The the, the crowds haven't changed, really, since chapter 4. It's the same old story, right? We want to come to Jesus. We like his powers. Maybe even like his teaching a little bit, but we're not going to repent and entrust ourselves to him. We're in it for the miracles. We're in it for the bennies. That's what they're characterized as. They're not disciples, and so they're not seeing, like the disciples are, who Jesus is and him revealing his identity. They're not increasing in faith. They're stuck. Peter has little faith, but the, the crowds have none. That is the picture we are supposed to come away with. 
So what do we learn from all of this? What do we learn from all of this? Let's draw some lessons from it. Well, first, it's the lesson that Matthew has been giving us over and over again throughout the Gospels. What are the Gospels supposed to do? First and foremost, they're supposed to show us Jesus. Recognize. It's kind of ironic. What did it say? The crowds recognize Jesus? Hey, it's Jesus! But did they really? No, they didn't really recognize Jesus for who he was. Only the disciples did. But as a disciple... What are we called to do? Recognize who Jesus is as Yahweh, the Son, as God, the Son, as the Creator God in human flesh. And part of the goal of the Gospels is for us to see him in his glory, even in his glory being cloaked in his humanity, and to bask in it, to just enjoy it, to be astounded by it. That's really what Christianity is all about. It's about being able to see and delight and enjoy God, all three persons, for all eternity. That's where the Bible ends in Revelation, that his people being around him, seeing his face, seeing the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and enjoying their fellowship for all eternity. That is the goal. And so as Christians, as disciples, we see Jesus in the Gospels, and we need to, we, we so quickly jump to, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? No, what you first need to do is see Jesus in all of his glory and who he is, and enjoy him, and worship him, and delight in him. Yes, he has some things for you to do as his disciple, as his follower, but that's not the found. that's not Christianity starts with that relationship, with that enjoyment, with that worship, with that delight. Um, we could keep piling up terms with that joy in who God is, in who Jesus is, and in having that connection with him. Think about this, right? The disciples are in the boat. They see this. What did Jesus just say at the end of chapter 12? Who are my mother and my brothers? Here they are. Here's my closest family. Here's my closest family as my disciples. Think about that. And it's true for us, right, that our closest family, Jesus' closest family, is his people, his disciples, and he is the creator God, the awesome one, who will rule over all the earth as a human and as God. Let me just just pause and enjoy that. We can draw some more implications from this. We see it from what the focus of this whole passage is Peter, right? And what's going on with Peter and the disciples in the boat. True faith and discipleship is based on the identity of who Jesus is as God the Son. And then true faith and discipleship focuses on him and acts on that knowledge. That's really what biblical faith is. Biblical faith doesn't look to oneself at all. It's not self-confidence. It's not, do I believe enough? It's totally looking outside of itself and focusing attention on the God and on Jesus and who he is as God, as God the Son, and all of who he is, and then acts based on that knowledge. Steps out of the boat, in this case, and walks on water. Not because of who they are, not because of who Peter is, but because of who Jesus is. That's biblical faith. We also learn about the essential nature of doubt. And doubt arises when our focus drifts to other circumstances and we allow those to drive 
fear, right? Our, our focus as Christians is to be taken up by Jesus Christ, that he is our all, he is our joy, he is our treasure, he is the creator God, he just needs to command and I'm going to do it because he can enable what he commands. But then what? We get distracted by things that look more real, that look more close, that look more threatening, and we let those things drive us to fear, which is the essence of doubt. It produces doubt. Doubt of who Jesus is and what he's enabling us to do. Being a disciple of Jesus means that you're connected with God the Son as his family. We just mentioned that. And there is absolutely no purpose to fearing circumstances. Zero. For what purpose did you doubt? Why? Because you're connected as a disciple to the Creator God, to God the Son. There is absolutely no purpose in fearing circumstances because as a disciple, through faith, you are connected to the Creator God. Does that mean that we don't face scary circumstances, difficult circumstances? Absolutely not. We will. Jesus promised that we will. We're going to face scary circumstances. And what did he say back in chapter 10? Do not be afraid. Even when people are threatening to kill you, how is that even possible? My focus on Jesus as God the Son. I am connected to the Creator God through the Son. I'm His. I'm part of His family. There is absolutely no purpose to me fearing. Because no matter what, even if I die, I'm connected to the Creator God. I'm connected to Jesus Christ. Even in the most difficult circumstances, we can make it through in a God-honoring, courageous way, not by looking to yourself and to your own resources. What has Jesus been teaching? He taught it last week. He's teaching it this week. But by focusing your attention and your trust on Jesus. Jesus is my master. Jesus is my Lord. My life is all about him. It's not about me. It's all about him. And so no matter what he tells me to do, even if it seems crazy, He's the creator God, and he gets to command me to do what he wants me to do. That's what it means to have faith and to walk as a disciple. There's another lesson we learn from the crowd. Do you recognize who Jesus is? They thought they did, didn't they? Hey, we recognize this guy. Let's, get, let's gather everyone up so he can heal us. Do you recognize who Jesus is? Or are you happy to hang around him and his people for the benefits? There are benefits to hanging around the church and to hanging around his people, aren't there? There's care, there's love, there's all of those things. And yet, we can even just be looking to Jesus for the benefits rather than delighting in him. Now, don't get me wrong. Does Jesus bring benefits to his people? Well, of course, because... Uh, what has Jesus done for his people? He has died on their place for their sins so that they trust in him and their sins are canceled. And there's uh, the promise of life everlasting and the promise of eternal joy, but the substance of that eternal joy is not the benefits. It's not the streets of gold. It's not the, the this and the that. It's not the living forever. It is God himself. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
The substance of eternal life, the substance of Christianity is Jesus himself and delighting and enjoying him. So you can get really close. You can enjoy some of the benefits of Jesus and hang around him and his people. Do you love Jesus for what he does for you or do you love him? Do you love Jesus for what he does for you or do you love him? He is not someone to be trifled with because he is the creator God. He is compassionate and kind. He is almighty and majestic. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is God the Son, so focus your faith and courage on him and do not be afraid. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are excellent and majestic. We thank you for even lifting the veil, even in your earthly ministry, and showing this is who you are, that you are God the Son. And Lord, at once that's majestic and amazing, and at once it's, it's so humbling, because the reason you're coming as a man, that you added humanity to your deity, was to rescue us from our sin, to rescue your people, those who would entrust themselves to you, those who would swear allegiance to you, those who would follow you to save them from their sins and to give them the joy of being in your presence with all its fullness of joy of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. Lord, we thank you for that. We praise your great and awesome name. We praise you that you have rescued us, that the cry of faith, Lord, save me, I have nothing, we're going to die apart from you, die eternally. And then you answer, you reach out your hand and you grab us. It's all you, Lord Jesus, and we praise you and we thank you. Help us to have eyes of faith. Oh Lord, we get distracted so easily by things that seem more real, by the circumstances around us, the things that drive us to fear, the things that distract us. Oh Lord, give us grace this week to have a locked focus on you and on who you are, your identity, to love you, to delight in you. And even if you call us to die, Lord, that you would enable us to do that, and we would be okay with that because we would have you. We are connected with you. Help us to walk faithfully this week. Remove the distractions, remove the fears, and help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. We love you, we praise you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.